Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. Among the names inscribed on the right field wall at Comerica Park are Crawford, Heilman, and Manouche. These Hall of Famers are three of the greatest players of their era and three of the greatest Tigers of all time. And yet all three are overshadowed by a name on the left field wall at Comerica Park. Dan Diodonna wanted to change that, so he wrote In Cobb Shadow, the Hall of Fame careers of Sam Crawford, Harry Heilman, and Heine Manouche. I asked him who these three Tigers were and why they deserve to be remembered. Dan Diodonna, thanks for joining me. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. So you worked at the Hall of Fame for a summer, and in my imagination, I picture that working at the Hall of Fame, you go around swinging Babe Ruth's bat and running into Willie Mays in the cafeteria. At the risk of spoiling my fantasy, what was it like to work at the Hall of Fame? <laughs> um, that's like the dream that most people think, wish and hope that it is. Um, it's, it's in the middle, actually. I mean, I definitely could have been able to hold and swing Babe Ruth's bat down in the archives. Um, I think each of us got to do something like that with one one cool artifact. But uh, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot different than I thought. I was kind of thinking some something like that too when I first got there. I worked in the research library, and uh, my job was to help all the authors with their research who were coming in, which was just monumental for me as far as uh, you know thinking about doing this book, you know, down the line, but just knowing knowing the process, knowing what kind of obstacles uh, plenty of authors had. And it was just it was just really, really fun to see. Uh, Tom Stanton came in to do research um, as after final season came out. He was doing research on uh, his Road to Cooperstown and Tie in the Babe, I think, books uh, when I was there. And, uh, you know, just helping him along and just assisting in any way I can and just seeing the process and seeing the the, the hard work and, and then the end product was was really cool, you know, to just to just know you helped a little bit, something like that. Um, as far as the rest of the, the Hall of Fame goes, we did I, we did plenty of other things, did gallery talks around the museum, and you know, just kind of contributed in, in a ton of different ways. And it was just uh, it, it was just just really really fun. So, how did this book come about? Why this book? Why these three players? Well, this I'll give you the medium story. <laughs> um, so. I wanted to, after after working at the Hall of Fame and doing all that with all the the authors for and seeing so many great projects come out of just or just people that I worked with that summer, uh, it was very inspiring. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing a book. Uh, I want. I think uh, it was my thought process that every Hall of Famer deserved a full biography, and I was going to try to help you know help knock out somebody that wasn't featured so far. And my first thought was Charlie Geringer. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, most people that do a biography of someone, I don't want to say Charlie Geringer is obscure because in Detroit, for Detroit fans, he's not really obscure, but nationally, he was so quiet, even though he was so good that that it's not like he's a household name or anything. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this book on Charlie Geringer. It'll be great. Most people that do a book on a lesser known Hall of Famer have some sort of hook to it. And my great, I believe it was my great-grandmother used to babysit him when he was a kid, or my great-great-grandmother. must have been my great-great-grandmother. So my grandmother used to tell me this story um, about how my her grandmother used to babysit Charlie Geringer. And my grandma's family was from near uh, Fowlerville, where he was from. And I was like, okay, there's your hook. I'm going to do this. And I got the Hall of Fame sent me all this stuff. I started reading, and about two weeks into it, I saw that someone else was coming out with a book on Charlie Geringer. And I was like, okay, I'm glad I found out 
two weeks there or a month or whatever it was after rather than, you know, two years down the road. Um, and the, it was uh, Skipper uh, that did the biography of him, and he was a uh, well-respected writer, so I knew it was going to be good, and it was really good. Um, so then I started shifting gears. I was like, okay, what other Tigers needed something? And Sam Crawford just kept kept coming up in, in my head. It was uh, every time I looked at different things about him, I couldn't believe how good he was and how few people remembered or knew of anything that he did. I mean, people, even even really, really big Tiger fans now, you say Sam Crawford, they go, okay, he's in the Hall of Fame, and he's got the triples record, right? And then that's it. That's about as far as it goes, um, even with most Tiger fans that I've come across just because it was so long ago. And he, again, was, you know, these Tigers over the years, as you know, blue collar all the way through pretty much every star the Tigers have ever had, you know, maybe with the exception of, <laughs> of Cobb, has been very, you know, blue-collar, quiet, you know, and just kind of embodied the city like that. So uh, I started doing all this stuff with Crawford. I was My plan was to just do a book on Crawford, and it just kind of clicked one day. I was sitting in the press box covering a West Michigan Whitecaps game and talking with somebody about it, and somehow it just the other, uh, Harry Hammond and Heidi Manoush just kind of popped in their head. We were talking about what great outfields, uh, the Tigers had back, you know, back at this time, and they had two different versions of three Hall of Fame outfielders and the same team. And I was like, oh, it was kind of like a eureka moment. And I was like, okay, that's the book because they all played three Hall of Fame outfielders that played in the same outfield with Ty Cobb. They were completely overshadowed by him, and that's kind of how it uh, it went on from there. But it started with a let's try Charlie Geringer, and then finding that that didn't, and then going all in with Sam Crawford. And then, uh, you know, and then it just kind of had this like divine intervention kind of a moment in a press box at a baseball stadium, which at a at a third ballpark, which is pretty cool. You describe Crawford as a physically imposing, strong hitter who could really drive the ball. His specialty, as you mentioned, was the triple, just because he could hit it so far and cover so much ground. Contrast that with Cobb, who was more happy to just slap a single through the infield if he could. Was Crawford much more of a power hitter? Much more. He was. Uh, he was the best pure power hitter of that time period. Um, you had I, Cobb could have, and he's, he mentioned several times later in his career and after his career that he could have hit more home runs if he wanted to. But when he first started, and this is more when people were trying to say that Babe Ruth was the best and not him. So we're talking a little bit more in hindsight and later on more in the 20s when the home run became even more prevalent. But the home run wasn't prevalent um, when Ty Cobb first, uh, first came into the big league or with Crawford. It was you know, the fences were different. Sometimes there weren't even fences. Sometimes there was roped off fans because um, the ballparks were smaller and built different. And, you know, Crawford just, I mean, triples were the home run. That's it, pretty much the way it was because you had to hit it far enough to and leg it out. So that showed how his strength and his speed at the same time. I think uh, I mentioned in the book, too, that uh, in one of his historical abstracts, Bill James calculated that it's some, some formula that he thought that if, Crawford played uh, in the 20s and 30s, he would have hit four, like 494 home runs just based on, on all the factors involved with what the differences were, the ball, what the ballparks were, and the fact that he was the, you know, the premier power hitter. Our best source for hearing from Crawford himself comes from Lawrence Ritter's famous collection of oral histories, Glory of Their Times. Tell us a little bit about general impressions of Crawford you get from his chapter in that book, and then specifically how he reflected on his time playing with Cobb. I mean, this is the big, the big source um, with this this interview, and I actually had 
the audio on it too. So I actually got to hear Crawford himself talking about it, which was really, um, and that's, that's available to everybody. So that's something I would highly recommend for any baseball fan is these, they have this CD set of, um, it's, I think it's half the interviews from the, from Ritter's, uh, glory of their times. And it just to hear him physically speaking and, and, you know, for somebody who's, was not around during the TV era and the radio era and all this stuff where you never heard any interviews or anything, anything you did was reading it. That was, that was just really incredible. But he, you know, he just, he talked a lot about, uh, you know, early in his career, especially when Cobb came up and, um, he and Cobb did not get along. This is not a secret that, you know, Cobb kind of had this chip on his shoulder. Um, and you know, kind of a little bit of paranoia also. And that was, you know, just very off-putting to a lot of people. I mean, he, you know, he didn't have too many friends on the team anyway. Um, but, you know, Crawford was kind of like the established star on the team at that point. And they just, you know, they just didn't really, really get along. Uh, Crawford, you know, was part of the veteran group that, you know, kind of gave him, a, razzed him a little bit as a rookie, as they do all rookies. But Cobb took, you know, specific uh, exception to it. And it just kind of salted their relationship from the beginning. And then it just, it got worse, even that they respected the heck out of each other. I mean, Cobb definitely was one of the, it's a true story that he was really lobbying for Crawford to get in the Hall of Fame, and he did so later for Heilman also. But they, you know, they used to drive each other crazy. I mean, there were times where they were so angry where it was, Cobb was on first base trying to steal, and Crawford was deliberately fouling off pitch after pitch to just make, to make Cobb just keep running and to, to drive him crazy, and it worked, and they drove each other crazy a little bit. But, you know, it was the first big one-two punch in baseball history, and still, uh, to this day, one of the best one-two punches in baseball history. It was interesting to hear him him describe it so many years later, you know, his relationship with, with Cobb a little bit, and just also what baseball was like, even back to when he was, uh, before he was in the major league, some of the traveling town kind of town ball stuff that he that he did, you know, describing going through on wagons, going through orchards and whatever else to try to get to the next town to play. So Crawford and Cobb clashed on the field and off the field. And yet I think Crawford in the Ritter interview also describes how they could send subtle signals to each other. If Cobb was on base, just a little, was it nod of the head would signal what he wanted Crawford to do? Yeah, definitely. They had, I mean, this, I mean, you see this now more in maybe the NBA or other sports uh, that where you have, you know, kind of egos that clash, but but boy, can they really play together. Um, and I think this was kind of the first example of that uh, in baseball where they, you know, yeah, they definitely could drive each other crazy, but they, they both wanted to win so badly. And they knew, they each knew how valuable and how great the other player was. They were, they were very much respected each other's playing ability. And yeah, they, they were able to just, you know, kind of, you know, you play for so long. I mean, they played well over a decade together and you're just, you know, you play for so long together and you really start to, you know, have this chemistry. And I think that that's something that, especially before home runs that I think the game now is missing. I mean, I think Houston got that a little bit with guys like Altuve and stuff, but you don't have guys play together that long um, and have to play small ball that much to, you know, kind of really analyze each other's play on the same team and feed off each other like that. The negative comments about Cobb are a reminder. I mean, after reading Charles Learson's biography of Cobb and realizing that so much of the negative imagery of Cobb was exaggerated or even fabricated, to go back to Crawford talking about Cobb before that ghostwriter Al Stump ever came on the scene is a reminder that 
Cobb wasn't as bad as everybody remembers him to be, but he was a difficult personality nonetheless. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I liked the the idea of that book um, that uh, that Charles wrote, and I think that it it did need to be revisited. Um, I just I do think it goes a little bit far. I think you know trying to make it sound like he was a little more even squeaky clean than he was. Yes, he wasn't deliberately trying to spite people on the base stats, but he did, uh, like the the court records of his arrests and having to travel around. Uh, through Canada to get so he couldn't go into Ohio because he would be arrested the second he set foot in Ohio. Those are true stories. It's not like he was completely painted the wrong way because there would have been so many people at the time of Stump's biography that would have protested. Now, I'm not saying it definitely was. A lot of things were fabricated or exaggerated, and he, he definitely is seen way worse in our society, in our history, than he should be. Uh, but yeah, he still was very difficult. He still, that doesn't change the fact that he really didn't have too many friends um, on the team. Um, I think it was Davy Jones also in uh, the glory of their times that said uh, he thought that he might be his only friend on the team and he really didn't even like him that much. So it's it's just, it's just kind of interesting how the society's view of cop has gone from, you know, based on what people have written. And it's unfortunate that, that Stump kind of ruined some things, but at the same time, uh, yeah, he was, he was not seen as like a, all-American Jeter type, you know, or something like that by any means. So talking about Cobb going through Canada to avoid Ohio, that definitely came into play in the 1909 World Series where he had to get to Pittsburgh and had to bypass Ohio to do that. Now those World Series, 1907 through 1909, the Tigers make three straight World Series, which is a remarkable accomplishment, and yet losing all three and losing the first two very badly kind of hangs over hangs a, a cloud over the careers of both Cobb and Crawford. And Crawford in particular, I think after the 09 series, there's an article in the Free Press saying Crawford just can't come through in the clutch. How much did it hurt uh, his legacy and the legacy of that Tigers team uh, that they just fell short? With the first two World Series, it's hard to fault them because they were up against some tough pitching, but they didn't, they didn't come through when it counted most. Yeah, yeah, I think that does hurt. I, don't, I think it hurts. Crawford's legacy a little more just because Ty Cobb still is regarded as, you know, one of the top five players of all time. It's not like, uh, that's not a secret, uh, but for somebody who's maybe a little, you know, not as well known and their legacy has kind of gotten cloudy and diluted over the years simply because of time. The time it's been, you know, a hundred years, over a hundred years now since those world series. But yeah, I think it really did hurt him because he didn't play as well as he's used to playing. And, you know, and the team didn't also, but he really, you know, he kind of took it personally, you know, too, that he, he knows that he didn't play well. And that's, that's, that's really tough. And then for a team, anytime you're talking baseball history back that far, you, you remember the teams that win the world series, you know, that those are the, they get brought up when you're whenever you're talking about things, you know, historically, when you're during world series time every year, whenever you're talking about specific teams or specific players, but instead, you know, you know, Crawford, and he, he should be on this list that they talk about, like with Ernie Banks, some of the best players that never won the World Series. People talk about Ty Cobb. People talk about Ernie Banks. But you know, Crawford is right up there as far as as far as that's concerned. And it was, uh, yeah, they were up against great pitching those two those first two years against the Cubs. But it's hard in a small ball kind of era of baseball. Yeah, the pitching was so great, but it's you know you got to be able to squeak out some runs and pitch themselves. The Tigers had great pitching at that point too during that era. And they just couldn't get it done against the Cubs. I mean, the Cubs were, I mean, obviously the best team in baseball during that time, but it was, it was still disappointing that they didn't play. They didn't play well. It wasn't like in 1909 when they played Pittsburgh 
and you had Cobb versus Wagner, and it was the first game in a best-of-seven format to go seven, and it was the two biggest stars, and the teams were great, and it went back and forth. And, you know, that's a little bit different. They had a good, you know, they had a good showing. It was a great, exciting World Series that, you know, that people were talking about. But that just, the first two years kind of were much more souring than, than the 1909 World Series, uh, particularly for Crawford. So Crawford's career ends in the late 19-teens, and he ends up just shy of 3,000 hits. I think it was 39 hits shy. And you wonder, because he played four more years of minor league ball after that, and you think, what if he had been more successfully converted to a first baseman? What if the Tigers had maybe just kept him around to give him enough pinch hit appearances to reach that milestone? You write that if he had hit 3,000 and been one of only, it would be three Tigers to reach that 3,000 hit plateau in addition to Cobb and Kaline, that that would have solidified his legacy, certainly in Detroit. Right, absolutely. Isn't that funny how 39 hits can... <laughs> just it doesn't it seems like such a well you know it, you know you see it today too uh my the thing that i always kind of compared to is fred mcgriff he hit 493 home runs seven shy of 500 and people can almost forget him about for almost forget about him for the seven he didn't hit instead of the 493 that he did hit and i think that that's kind of similar similar case with crawford here is that uh it also would have been he would have been one of the first to get 3,000 hits, period. I mean, Cap Anson did the 1800s when no one knew, no one was tallying that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, he would have been in a group with Wagner, Lajoy, and Cobb, and that's uh, that's a pretty pretty exclusive group there. And I think that every time 3,000 hits comes up, you know, every time, you know, when, when Jeter passed it, when Beltre passed it, and A-Rod and all, all these guys that have done it lately, they show the list on TV, on the screen, all the time, who they're passing. And and then from now on, you know, you got as long as they keep going, they will keep showing the screen of who they're close to, who they're passing. And I think that that's why people kind of know who Paul Wayner is. And and I mean, even Eddie Collins. I mean, he was such a great second baseman, one of the best ever, but also played in that era so long ago, and you know, was not really a colorful character. So a lot of baseball fans really don't know who Eddie Collins is, or maybe have heard of him. But he comes up every time they talk about. 3,000 hits, and every time they show, you know, that list, and I think that that really, he would have been, Crawford would have, would have been one of the four people they were showing for 100 years of that, I mean, they're showing in the newspaper, obviously, before they had TV, but he would have been discussed in the 3,000 hits club for an entire century, and I think that those 39 hits cost him that, and that's a lot of talk about him that didn't happen, that could have, and I think that that definitely made people not remember him and also made it uh, a lot harder for him to get in the Hall of Fame. It should not have been difficult for him to get in the Hall of Fame at all, and it took you know quite a bit longer than uh, than it should have. One mark of his that has stood the test of time is his career triples mark. He's still the all-time leader in Major League history in triples, and uh, the triples kind of becoming a lost art today. Why is that, and why do you expect Crawford's triples record to stand for a while, maybe forever? Well, I think part of the, I mean, the biggest thing is the home runs. I mean, obviously, a lot of his triples would have been home runs if the ballparks were constructed differently or if it wasn't the dead ball. Uh, there's a lot of factors that play into that. But you've got to have the ability to hit, for, to get triples consistently. They're not all line drives down the third base line that just rattle around or the first base line and rattle around. A lot of triples, they've got to be hit. You know, you've got to hit them pretty, pretty good. It's got to be some power hitting in there, too. Um, there just aren't that many players that have the true combination of power and speed 
or if they have it, they usually don't use both things, you know, like, I mean, Mickey Mantle obviously had both of those things, but he was hitting the ball so far. There were just, there wasn't as many triples and then he got hurt and then his speed was kind of gone. I mean, you saw, I mean, Granderson has, Curtis Granderson has been, you know, kind of a triples artist, not anywhere close to Crawford, but he has a bit of power, but he also has quite a bit of speed and he's able to utilize that. Um, and you saw that in the year that he, you know, had, what he, had, he went 20, 20, 20, 20 with home runs, doubles, triples, um, stolen bases. And Jimmy Rollins did the same thing that year. And, it was kind of like a cool year, and I think people started talking about Crawford a little bit because of that. But you just don't have anybody that has that combination of power and speed that completely utilizes it on a regular basis. Usually, the you know somebody that has that kind of tremendous power, they don't want running the bases, they don't want to get hurt. You know, they want to save them for a home run rather than do something silly like dislocate two fingers sliding into third, you know, or something like that. So I think that's part of it. That's the biggest, the biggest part of it. But, uh, you know, we're just also revolved around the home run, too, that it's just, uh, I think a triple is much more exciting. I mean, the, the home run, the, the drama of the home run is most of the most of the home runs are done once the ball leaves the bat. But the drama of a triple lasts so much longer because you have so many things as you're watching the play unfold. Where's the ball going? How's it rattling around? How fast is the runner? How's the, which outfielder is it? Who are they playing? Who's, how's the outfielder's arm? Where's the cutoff, man? Where's the tag going to be? Is he going to slide? feet first, head first, you know, whatever. All those factors play in for quite a quite a bit of time as this play is unfolding. But, I mean, unless a home run hits the foul pole or barely, you know, gets into, like, that basket at Wrigley or something like that, the drama of the home run is done the second the ball hits the bat. You know it's gone more often than not. So one of the reasons the Tigers phased out Crawford in the late 19-teens was they were phasing in Harry Heilman and trying to juggle around a full outfield with Bobby Veach in the mix as well. But once Heilman emerged, he was able to form as effective a one-two punch with Cobb as Crawford was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was it was an interesting transition. Crawford got, you know, they kind of told him, you know, you're old now, you need to play first base. And and Crawford was like, you know, he was too prideful of that. They had tried that a few years earlier, and Crawford tried playing first base. He wasn't comfortable there. It affected his hitting. He uh, you know, he just didn't like it, so he stopped doing it. But, I mean, if they could have, <laughs> he could have played three more years at first base. And that would have been really something to have all of those guys in the lineup for multiple years. Yeah, they didn't know what to do with Heilman. When he first came up, he played with second base. <laughs> and that's another, I mean, he was not a great second baseman, but that's another factor in there, too. But if he stayed playing second base, then Crawford could have stayed in the outfield and he would have had Crawford, Heilman, Manoush, and, or Crawford, excuse me, Heilman, Cobb, and Veach in the same lineup. I mean, Veach is a guy that led the league in RBIs three times and batted 310 for his career. That's, that's no slouch. You want that in your lineup, too. But yeah, Highland just kind of played his way in there, and uh, he he wasn't quite the RBI machine that Crawford was. It was more singles and doubles, um, but it was an awful lot. And he, you know, he became you know one of the best right-handed hitters in history. And it was you know it was just uh, just an interesting phase. Is you don't usually you don't usually have that on a team where you have somebody that's been so respected for so long, and then you have somebody kind of ushered in. I mean, it's, you saw that with Tigers outfielders, you see it with like. You know, going from DiMaggio to Mantle, and you see it with uh, Ted Williams to Yastrzemski to Jim Rice in the Boston left field in, in front of the monster, which is such an anomaly. Um, but this was one of those true pa- fir- first true passing of the torch uh, to somebody that was completely at the end of, or nearing the end of the career, to someone who was completely at the beginning. It's not like they overlapped by like 10 years or something. And uh, yeah, he played his way right in there. 
and he hits 403 in 1923 of lasting achievement of his and he hit 398 in 1927 so he came close to hitting 400 again again you say how could a 400 hitter not have a larger historical impact when you look back that achievement to be the last right-handed hitter to hit 400 and only three since it really stands out yeah i mean the last right-handed hitter in the american league to do it i think correct hornsby did it hornsby did it the following year but uh that, that it's insane that that's not remembered. You, everybody remembers Ted Williams for 406. Most baseball fans, they know he was the last one to hit 400. It comes up every time. You know, when George Brett was going for 400, I think it was in 1980. You know, when Tony Gwynn was doing the same thing in 1994, whenever, I mean, Carew had a couple years where halfway through the year he thought that was going to happen. Uh, it seemed like Tony Gwynn had that every year. <laughs> where you thought, oh, maybe if he really, you know, keeps this going. But they always just talk about Ted Williams. It wasn't something that, it's not like when you list all the 3,000 hit guys where it shows all the... Sometimes they do that, but it's not nearly as frequent. And, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing that he hit 400, almost did it again, won four batting titles, and has a 342 career average, which is the same as Babe Ruth, and, you know, well in the upper, you know, maybe 12 players in the in the modern era. And that's ridiculous. That he sh- Somebody like that should be a household name, really. But, you know, I think some people think that you know, the era he played in was different. You had uh, Cobb approaching 400 a lot the decade before when it was still kind of a dead ball. And, you know, Heilman did it more when it was the live, this extreme live ball. You're the roaring 20s and into the early 30s where you had uh, lots of people batting. You know, not lots by our standards today of people batting 400. You had a few triple crowns in there. Um, the offense was at an all-time high. So I think people kind of try to diminish that. But at the same time, even if you're waiting eras and you're saying okay so we hit 400 then what would it be now you're still talking about someone that won four batting titles doesn't matter what era they're in they would have won the batting titles and it still would have been in the upwards of 360 370 every year depending on the era so it's still incredibly incredibly impressive and on top of that on top of his achievements he goes on to have a long broadcasting career and is a beloved broadcaster where he talks on the air about his playing days, I think some days as, as much as he was talking about the game in front of him. So his broadcasting career seemed to, you would think it would make his name register on, on even more levels with the Detroit fans. Yeah, absolutely. He should, I mean, you, you, he was the beloved broadcaster before we had Ernie Harnwell, and he was one of the beloved players at his time. You put that together, and there should be nobody in Detroit that doesn't immediately know that he hit 400, that he's in the Hall of Fame, that he batted three forty two. Like there's so many, there's so many reasons that Heilman should be remembered in Detroit and even Detroit fans. Uh, that was one of my biggest inspirations for the book is going around asking Tiger fans, people that I know are diehard Tiger fans their whole life. And I asked them about this and everyone knew that Crawford or not everyone, a lot of people knew that Crawford had the triples record. Not quite as many people knew that Heilman hit 400 one season. No one knew anything about Heidi Manoush. And it was just like, okay, these are like three upper-level Hall of Famers. We're not, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed because there's way more to Crawford than just the triples record. There's way more to to Heilman than just once batting at 400. And those are the kind of things that needed to be told. And it's just mind-boggling to me um, as a lifelong baseball and Tiger fan that that more wasn't known about, uh, about them. 
So talking about Heine Manoush, he wins the batting title in 1926, beating out Babe Ruth. And it's just incredible to read about in 26, 27. We think of the 27 Yankees as immortal and untouchable. And yet the Tigers had the bats to hang with the Yankees. They didn't have the pitching, but they had the bats to hang in there with the with the Yankees for all the firepower they had. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. You think about, you put Manoush's title and Highland's four titles, and then Combine that with Cub, that's like 18 of the first 25 bag titles in the American League or something like that. 18 of the first something along those lines. That's incredible. Like, that's almost like a stranglehold on the batting title. People remember Cobb doing that, but it was three different people that contributed to that. And not to mention, you know, Crawford that finished second three times at least to, to Cobb and all these guys finishing second to each other. All the times that Kyleman didn't win, he was right up there, you know, and other guys were in there. So, um, they definitely had the bats. Their their pitching severely dropped off. I mean, they had they had a good run with those three pennants. They also had a year after those pennants in fifteen, I believe, it was nineteen fifteen. They won a hundred games and didn't win the pennant, and that's incredible, you know. Um, but then after that, the, everything just dropped off. The pitching just went south, and they never really didn't really recover until the thirties. And that was that was kind of the story of that team. They could hit. Um, they could hit a ton, but they they just they just struggled to pitch. But I mean, you go from having Crawford, and you know you had maybe one a, a good year where Crawford and Heilman and Cobb were in the outfield together. Then Crawford moves on, and then you you know a couple years later you got Manoush in there. You got three Hall of Famers in there, three Hall of Fame outfielders together that all won batting titles for your team at once, and that's that's just incredible. And Heilman could have passed the torch to Manoush as a long-term uh, signature hitter in the Tigers lineup, but the Tigers unwisely traded Manoush away after the 1927 season. And he bounced around to different teams. He had some solid years with Washington where they won a pennant. But just the fact that he isn't identified with a single team as much as the other two, that diminishes his memory a little bit. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the worst trades the, the Tigers have ever made. I mean, he... He went from winning the batting title to having a down year, and then they traded him. And it was, you know, he came within a couple days of the last of the end of the season of winning a couple more batting titles in his career. Um, he was a good player everywhere he went. And yeah, I think that not just that he doesn't identify with the team. When you think about all the teams, most of the teams he went to after he left the Tigers are gone. He went to the St. Louis Browns, almost won a batting title. There's no St. Louis Browns anymore. Then he went to the Washington Senators, almost won a batting title, had a 33-game hit streak, helped them win a pennant. The Washington Senators aren't there anymore. I know the Nationals are there now, but it's completely different. And they don't, they're not the same franchise, and they don't, they're so disjointed in so many years of history that Washington fans don't really remember anything but Walter Johnson, really. Um, and then, you know, then he, he plays for Brooklyn. Uh, they're gone, you know, and it's just like every... <laughs> Every, it seems like every team he played for, besides the Tigers, well, I mean, he played for Boston for a year in Pittsburgh, you know, so that wasn't wasn't quite every year. But all his productive years, that real productive years that he was on the Tigers are on teams that don't exist anymore. And I think that that is crazy to think that that could happen to one player like that. But, yeah, that, I think that, that really hurts legacy. I mean, you're talking about a 330 career hitter. Yes, it was in the, you know, the higher offensive time. But there weren't very many players from that time that had a career 330 average you know you're talking three four guys besides Manoush and uh you know that's uh that's kind of incredible and he also did that during an offensive era where he also was not a home run hitter he was a line drive hitter we're talking singles and doubles 
and uh, he had a lot of them. But I mean, if it's three thirty career average for a full career. You know, that should be somebody that's definitely remembered. But you know, yeah, he doesn't have the Tigers fans. Even though he's he's in the Hall of Fame with the Tigers cap on because he played five years with the Tigers, and that was the most of any, the longest tenure he had with any team. Which also going back to that time when most of the you know you were tied to the team you're on. Manoush is one of the first players to be bouncing around, the first stars at least to be to be bouncing around quite a bit like that in the modern game, and it's uh, just interesting to think about. So Tigers fans don't really identify with him. Everybody else, everywhere else he played, doesn't even exist. So no one identifies with him, and that's uh, you know that's kind of a tough. Again, going back to Fred McGriff, that's kind of something that also hurts hurts him too. Is that you know he played several but not a ton of great years on like five different teams. You met with Minusha's nephew and niece in Alabama, in his hometown, I believe. Tell us what that was like and, and their response to your effort to chronicle Heine Minusha's career. For sure. That was that was really the most interesting. I mean, when you talk about, you know, doing a, a biography of someone, you obviously need some family members. Crawford did not have anybody. He had his kids, you know, he, when he passed, his wife passed, one of, I think, believe one of his kids, passed and the other one moved to South America and it's just kind of been off the grid. Uh, that, that family tree part has been off the grid. The Hall of Fame can't track anybody down um, on their specific bloodline. And then uh, Heilman has a couple of, uh, couple of daughters uh, that were around. One daughter that, that was really helpful and some grandsons, three grandsons. Uh, one of them ended up actually living, still lives in the neighborhood that my parents live in, in Ann Arbor, which is uh, a very small world moment <laughs> in doing this book that uh, he, he ended up moving there, you know, a couple of years ago, and it was just kind of funny to see. But that, you're talking about grandchildren and daughters-in-law and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when you're talking about Heilman Minutia, it was like direct blood. You still had, a, you know, a niece and nephew, and they were, they live in the house that Minush was physically born in, still. It's still the Minush home in Tuscumbia, Alabama. It's still got that old southern home kind of feel the old furniture, the old parlor. It's a, it's a, it was a great place to visit. And they, they have kind of, his niece, Norma in particular was, uh, supremely helpful because she has kind of made it one of her, one of her life passions is to get him the recognition that he deserves. So he, she has done so many things with like their, their specific area in Alabama and plus lobbying, Alabama as a state to recognize him over the years and uh, the Hall of Fame and every, doing everything uh, that she can to get him more recognition. He's got a historical marker at the house now. Uh, it's got a plaque that looks similar to the Hall of Fame plaque on there at the house. They still live there. It's the same town that Helen Keller is from, so they get a little bit of, you know, a little touristy stuff, uh, you know, right next to Muscle Shoals. They have, like, some bus tours that go through, and they now stop. Um, in front of his house on the tours, which is, uh, you know, which is pretty cool. And uh, they were they were very helpful, but it was, there's nothing like driving from Michigan to Alabama <laughs> for something like this. And uh, they were they were just so helpful. They were so passionate about about it. And they had, you know, as they have so much information on him. They, had, they, they really put me in the direction because, you know, for a lot of the stuff that I was looking at, it, the, the Tiger years for him were, there weren't, there were only five of them. And after that, when he bounced around, I was trying to find more color. I was trying to find more stories about him, not just stats and stuff. And, you know, there's the, 
the story, the only story that I really found going through newspapers about him was in the 33 World Series when he got called out at first and he snapped the umpire's bow tie um, and got thrown out of the game, which I think is hilarious. I think the umpires all should wear bow ties still. I think that's fun. But, uh, yeah, it was just, it was really cool going down there. I actually went back down there for a book signing. They have a little, uh, little fun, kind of cute bookstore in their little downtown and uh, that's a, kind of a hopping place and that was, that was that was definitely fun to go down there a second time and kind of show the finished product. So tell us your hope or your objective for Tigers fans when they're looking at the wall at Comerica Park and seeing these names. What do you want them to know, or how do you want them to think of these three players? Well, I mean, for these specific three guys, I want people to remember that these are not just Hall of Famers. I mean, you got other names up there too: George Kell, Mickey Cochran, Huey Jennings. Um, you know, in addition to Ernie Harwell and Sparky Anderson up there. And uh, but these guys, these three in particular, are three upper level Hall of Famers. I mean, you could argue that Manoush was kind of middle of the pack, you know, outfielder or uh, as far as Hall of Fame outfielders go. But Heilman and Crawford are clearly in the upper echelon of Hall of Famers, and anybody else in the upper echelon of Hall of Famers should be remembered. And I think that they're two of they're maybe the two only players that I would designate that that are on a team that still exists that that don't get that recognition. I mean, I would say the, the other outfielders that are kind of in that realm, Al Simmons from the Philadelphia Athletics and Goose Goslin, who played a little bit for the Tigers at the end, but mostly played with Washington, I would say those are the other two upper echelon outfielders in the Hall of Fame who kind of are overlooked. But I think the biggest reason for that is the fact that their teams aren't there anymore. Um, they've, you know, they've moved around, and it's just not the same kind of fan base identifying. For Detroit, I, I mean, Detroit has prided, prided themselves on having blue-collar blue collar players, you know, as their stars. I mean, you see that uh, even now, I mean, as far as how they handle themselves. I mean, even Berlin was, you know, kind of mostly that that way. Granderson definitely was like that. You had Tramwell and Whitaker who were like that. K-Line was like that. Willie Horton was like that. Kell was like that. Uh, Greenberg and Geringer were like that. Uh, and these are the guys before that. I mean, I don't know why our memory as a historical as far as our historical significance with the Tigers seems to end there with the, the G-men of the 30s. But these guys were those blue-collar, that's what Detroit wants, is they want blue-collar works out. All I mean, the bad boys are blue-collar, the new version of the bad boys are blue-collar, the Red Wings, especially early on in this dynasty, and in their dynasty 70 years ago, that's what makes Detroit teams so special, is that the stars are blue-collar and embody the ideals of Detroit. And these guys really kind of started that. Crawford was really the start of that. Uh, he was the first star player in Detroit um, in the modern era. I mean, you had the Detroit Wolverines, you know, in the 1880s win the title, but that was really before it. baseball picked up like it did. And he was the first blue-collar star that Detroit ever really had for a long period of time. And to me, even as a pioneer in that sense, that should be remembered big time. And, and it's not, and I think that that's, it's easy for things to, people to get overlooked when they're blue-collar quiet players. As we saw, Lou Whitaker did not make the top 10 finalists in this modern-era ballot, which to me is just astonishing. Now Trammell and Morris did, but it's, that's another story. But Whitaker was quieter than them, too. It wasn't just about numbers. I think that that's really where people's you know legacies are forgotten, is if they're quiet and just do their job. They don't. Uh, people don't remember the same way as they should, and I think that that has really happened with these three guys, especially um, Heilman and Crawford, because they should, I mean, if they were, I feel like if they were on a different team, you know, if they were on the Yankees, they'd be household names, 
you know, or the Red Sox, but they're not, you know, and that's, that's not a knock on Detroit fans. We just need to remember that there's a reason that we don't know as much about them and that they're quiet. It's because that's the reason we want. We wanted them to be blue-collar players, just like we want our stars to be blue-collar now. But, yeah, they definitely deserve to be remembered. And you're talking about uh, three of, by far, the greatest players to ever play the game. And they all played with Cobb in his shadow. Obviously, that's a big factor, too. But they all played in the same outfield with Cobb. Sometimes multiple different factions of the entire outfield is full of Hall of Famers, and that's uh, that's just incredible. That you put them together like that with that legacy with Cobb, and that should have them really all be remembered as, as a household name, and it's not. But we just need to remember that the reason that it, they're not is because they embody, you know, the ideals that we that we want in our stars. Well, that's why this is an important effort, Dan. Thanks for bringing these names back to life for us. Thanks for your time today. Hey, no problem. Dan Diadana is the author of In Cobb's Shadow, the Hall of Fame careers of Sam Crawford, Harry Heilman, and Heidi Manoush. Diadana is sports editor at the Holland Sentinel in Holland, Michigan. Earlier this year, he was named Gatehouse Media's Sports Writer of the Year. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe now and leave us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners. You can also find us on Google Play and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Mm-hmm.